0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world.
2: It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
3: so crazy about it's
2: just music
0: welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio
2: and american public media i'm jim de the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg Cott. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to welcome the band that just debuted at number one in the country seattle's death cab for cutie Plus, we'll look at the latest hit album from Usher, and I'll pick a song to bring to the
0: desert island. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
3: Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Mr. President, happy birthday to you.
2: We are making Warner Music and the estate of Mildred and Patty Hill very happy right now uh, by playing (laughs) that song. Happy birthday, of course. Written in the 19th century, here we are in the 21st century, and royalties on copyright are still being paid every time happy birthday is played. There's a professor in this country, who was very upset about these circumstances, right, Jim? Yeah, Professor Robert Brownice of George Washington
0: University Law School dived deep into the whole story of Happy Birthday, Greg, because it is probably the ideal case study for copyright law in the U.S. His, uh, his exhaustive uh, research paper is online, along with tons of supporting documents. But we wanted the professor to tell us his story directly. Let's welcome Professor Brownice to the show. Professor, can you tell us in short about your, your paper? Because Greg and I have been reporting a lot on the issue of copyright. And this is, uh, frankly, one of the most fascinating things we've read yet. Well, thank you.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. The standard story or a standard story about this song, Happy Birthday to You, is that the song itself is more or less a folk song, but it's still under copyright. And that shows how overly expansive copyright protection has become. In truth, both parts of that assumed story are false. It's not a folk song. We know who composed it. And it's also likely that the song is not under copyright, although Warner Chapel Music certainly claims it is, and they're pulling in about $2 million a year for use of the song.
0: How can that be? I mean, we know that there are two sisters who wrote the song in 1893. (laughs) That's right, a long time ago. Well, it's a bit of a complicated story. The song they
1: wrote was called Good Morning to All and was originally intended as a classroom greeting. The reason why Warner Chapel can make a colorable claim that it's still under copyright, that happy birthday to you is still under copyright, uh, is that they claim that the words happy birthday to you weren't published in an authorized version until 1935 because of additional extensions to copyright term A copyright that started in 1935 runs for 95 years. That means that if that all is true, and if Warner Chapel or its predecessors did the right thing, the song will be under copyright until the year 2030.
2: You know, this ties in very neatly with the debate that's going on with copyright law in the country right now, uh, Professor, as you well know the infamous Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which was upheld by the Supreme Court a few years ago, basically saying that uh, copyright now is not only for the life of the copyright holder, but another 70 years on top of that, basically meaning that for roughly two centuries, works will require copyright payment uh, as opposed to entering the public domain. Can you explain why this is a bad thing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um... I personally do think that the term is gotten a bit on the long side, and I also think that the the retroactive expansion of copyright term granting it to works that were created many decades ago and clearly not under the expectation that they would somehow get additional protection that's that's a bad thing I am I have to say. A fan of copyright protection with a limited term, with a properly limited term, because it allows songwriters to earn a living. And so I think that's important. But in terms of why it's bad that it goes on for too long, I think that it means that the further development of creative works, which might use or borrow something from earlier works, is hindered. And, you know, it turns out that creative works do advance incrementally. There's no song that strikes off in a completely new direction and never borrows the harmonic or rhythmic or melodic vocabulary of earlier songs. So cutting back on borrowing is a all other things considered, a bad thing.
2: Well, you've got a crisis situation, too, now developing, obviously, Professor, with the, with digital technology making collage-style art forms uh, more readily accessible to everyone. These art forms are technically illegal because they're using copyrighted works, essentially. Uh, it, that's,
1: that's, that's correct up to a point. I mean, I, I don't want to overlook the fact that copyright does have a section which permits fair use mm-hmm, of... Right. Uh, materials, even those materials that are still under copyright. And many of those, I think, could survive a copyright challenge by making use of the, the fair use provision.
2: The thing is, it, it still prompts the specter of a, a, a legal activity. In other words, Absolutely. If, if you're if you're a poor artist making this collage-style art, there's always this fear that somebody's going to come after you uh, for That's money. That's
1: right. And you get a cease and desist letter from a company, and you think twice about continuing.
2: Yeah. Do you see that this is going to be challenged in court now as a result of the paper?
1: I think it's unlikely. Wow. The cost of litigating it continues to be higher than the cost of paying for a license for most people.
0: A lot of cash for a very annoying song.
1: <laughs> a lot of cash. Maybe an annoying song, but a song that can be sung enthusiastically by people with little musical background. Which... Know, who can't <laughs> sing? Or, you
0: know, the other question I just have to ask, I'm dying to know, you, you've spent a significant amount of your time and resources looking into this. What of the issue of the CODA, you know, the monkeys and the donkeys, you belong in the zoo. How does that play into this? <laughs>
1: It's absolutely a different composition. the uh, The only problem is that we haven't located the author. But if one of your listeners out there happens to know who wrote that, I, they, I, they... Think,
0: I think we can lay claim to that. There's money in it for why, us. Why,
1: you know, why spend your time running a radio show when you could just be sitting back and pulling in the cash for? <laughs> Well, the monkey song
2: Professor Brownice, I think that uh, distills the absurdity of copyright law right there, that last bit of dialogue. So thank you so much for uh, coming on sound opinions.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. When I was young lying in the crowd.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and we are here in the uh, beautiful Claudia Cassidy Theater at the Chicago Cultural Center, where we are hosting Death Cab for Cutie in front of a live audience. And we are pleased to welcome Ben Gibbard, Chris Walla, Nick Harmer, Jason McGur to the stage. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. Let's start. Uh, you've got instruments in hand, but let's, let's give a little background on this band. And Ben, I read an interesting comment that you made just recently. You're on uh, album number six right now, I believe, right? That's correct, yeah. This is our sixth record. Sixth record. You've been together for ten years, uh, which is remarkable. Each record has sold more than the previous one. The last record went platinum, million-selling record. But one thing you said uh, recently struck me as quite interesting. You said, uh, thank God, we were one of the last of the indie rock bands to sort of make it into the mainstream before the Internet broke. Could you sort of elaborate a little bit about what you meant by that?
4: Sure. Um, I, you know, I I think I should preface any explanation with one of my favorite quotes from Mike Watt, which is that not everybody can be born at the same time. So certainly, you know, bands today that are kind of living in this the heightened awareness of the internet age, I think, um, they're bands that are doing just fine. But I think for us, I think that we were really fortunate that we had you know a couple of years to kind of figure out what we wanted to do and make a couple of records that kind of allowed us to kind of slowly. Define who we were and, and learn to deal with each other as individuals and learn how to be a band.
2: I think it's important too to be allowed to suck for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah. I you are really, bad when you start out. You're not going to be a great band right from the get go. You know,
4: I mean, some some bands really are. I think I think we were I think we were a very good band when we first started. But I <laughs> but uh, but I think that we had but I think that we I think that we we learned how to be better as we were able to kind of make some mistakes and learn how to tour and and realized that we had to eat every day in order to be able to have the energy to play shows. And I I think we all feel fortunate that we were able to kind of get a couple years under our belt where we kind of learn how to to not suck,
0: I guess. There you go. There you go. Let's get this out of the way. Part of the history, you didn't have the Internet in the beginning, but you did have the O.C., now, this was a mixed blessing. I mean, you know, they, they played the music and they championed you, but also one of my favorite pieces of pithy rock criticism almost ever was uh, Summer said your music was one guitar and a whole lot of whining. <laughs> so you're which on is this an, which show, is, which but is, they're which, also dissing you. Which is inaccurate
4: because it's actually two guitars and a whole lot of whining. Right, 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 right. <laughs>
0: What was that experience? It's got to be weird though, sitting around at home and then you're on like this weird show about spoiled rich kids.
4: I think we're all glad that it's now a chapter in the band's history and not yeah. <laughs> and not, you know, the you know, it's and no longer the the end all be all of our story. It was a very interesting time and you know, every once in a while I'll you know, will be approached and asked about the OC and usually it's by somebody who's been a fan before the OC and they're kind of the, what they're looking for is for us to kind of validate them as being the real fans, quote-unquote, and that somehow if somebody came, became a fan of the band through a, a television show, somehow that's, that's a less than acceptable way to become a fan, which I absolutely don't agree with. I think that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, however, however people find music and, and, and react to it and, and, and find a place for it to live in their lives is fantastic, and, you know, it, and at the end of the day, you know, we're still here and the TV show isn't, so right, right, I think right. that we right. kind of won out on
0: that. On that, uh, <laughs> that and any way you slice it, Ben, it was cooler than the Flaming Lips being playing the Peach Pit on. Well, but House also, you know,
4: talk, I think, but I think that, you know, I think that the Flaming Lips on the on nine hundred two and O is kind of one of the touchstones that we kind of kept going to through the whole OC thing. It was like, <laughs> right.
2: well, the Flaming Lips <laughs> played the Peach Pit, so we might
4: as well play the Bait right. Shop or whatever.
2: Right, was. right. It's the Flaming Lips rule. That's great, Chris. Uh, I believe you have produced every record or at least recorded and engineered it.
5: Um, yeah, that's true.
2: Including the new one, Narrow Stairs. Including
5: the new one, Narrow Stairs, that's right.
2: How has the band changed in that time? I mean, it's a difficult role to produce basically your friends, your bandmates. Yeah. You've got to be the guy cracking the whip, telling them if the song isn't working. Right, right, um, right. That's a t- Why would you want that job?
5: Um, that's a really good question. I think that in some ways, in all honesty, I don't know how to not do it. I feel like my part in the band is... That's kind of how I met Ben. In a way, it was like I didn't, you know, like I had a guitar, but I also had a tape machine and a couple of microphones and a little mixing board, and like that was sort of more what I was interested in. So, as we've continued to make records, I think that everybody has just gotten better at communicating with one another. I mean, I remember like like if we were you know working on the first record or maybe a couple records, like if there's something that wasn't working out. And like I knew it wasn't working out, and like that that place of you know we're all we're passive aggressive Pacific Northwesterners, and there was a lot of um, Ben. I know this is like this is really is that guitar is just not working. You know, like there was a lot of that kind of thing, and it was, and then that turns into this like big thing, and it's like you know, and then there's all this crying, and like no, I don't hate you. <laughs> that guitar part's just not working. I'm really sorry. So
4: much for that uh, that tough guy thing we're trying, <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to stab Will, stab.
0: Wilco goes into the bathroom and throws up when they're upset. <laughs> <laughs> that's much cooler. That
5: is much cooler, it's true.
0: So there's less of
5: that now. I mean, it's really easy. I mean, so it, it, I think it's, it's so much of that is just desperation. That feeling of this is everything we have at this point and it's all so important. Everything feels so important. Because everything does feel so important when you're 21 and 22. And I think that's part of why so many bands make such great records at that age and like at that point in their lives and I, I don't know I mean I, I feel like we still have a lot of that but I also feel like I can now say let's do that again or this version of this song isn't working and it's like not, it's not the biggest thing in the world it's okay.
0: Well we have one of the best bands in America here today uh, with instruments <laughs> and we're chattering pointlessly. <laughs> would, you, would you guys uh, play for us? Sure. Yeah. Tell us Ben what you're going to do.
4: We're going to do a song off of our record, Transatlanticism, called Title Registration.
6: Try to forget and that's how this idea was drilled in.
2: Thanks. That's Death Cab for Cutie performing title and registration live at the Chicago Cultural Center. When we return after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to continue our visit with the band and then we're going to review the new album from Usher.
6: His head was a city
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg and I are going to continue our conversation with Death Cab for Cutie, which we recently taped in front of a live audience here in Chicago. I asked the band about opening their latest tour with a blessing from the Dalai Lama. You guys open for the Dalai Lama at the Key Arena in Yeah, man, Seattle? we're big fans. <laughs> that's a good gig how do you get yeah, that we gave him our
4: CD we were like if you ever have any more shows coming up and want to take a band on tour <laughs>
5: his demo's really his good his demo's really good
0: but the, I understand he gave the band a blessing that's true and, and this was just you know the, the album was done this was like one of the first gigs you were doing after the studio I mean that's a good way to start this new tour you realize you really that?
4: can't you really can't ask for a better way to start a tour cycle than with the blessing <laughs> from the Dalai Lama that's really I mean I don't want you know it, it, it was it was a, a pretty
2: amazing moment Oh, my God. Well, you just played a track off Transatlanticism, which uh, sold a million copies. And, you know, it's working the way it's supposed to work. You know, the band sells more records each time. You, you've had this 10-year career where each record does better than the previous one. You're now in a position where you're a big mainstream band, for lack of a better term. So you you record this new record, and I would imagine there's a certain amount of pressure on that to duplicate the success, and yet you re- Come back, and what do you give the record company uh, as the first single, an eight-and-a-half-minute song with four minutes of uh, instrumentation before the vocal comes in? So was that true, sort yeah. of the, the, the rigid mid, middle digit being flipped in the direction of uh, <laughs> Atlantic and the powers that be, uh, Say we're going to do it exactly what we want no matter what you say? Well, you know, I mean,
6: not
4: necessarily. I mean, I think that as we were turning in an eight-and-a-half-minute single with no vocals for the first, minute, first four minutes, I mean, we were obviously handing them this virtual piece of music, and saying there's going to be an edit for the radio. I mean, you know, we're not going to insist that this not be cut down so they can be played on the radio. I mean, we're, we're very proud of the, the way the song exists on the album, and thankfully a lot of radio stations are playing it in its long form, inexplicably. But, you know, I mean, you have to... I mean, I think that we didn't get to where we are now by not kind of playing a little ball, so...
2: Does that stuff concern you? I mean, like, that uh, radio stations may not play it because it's, you know, obviously a lot of stations would not play it simply because of the length. They don't care what the quality is. They don't have eight... They have to have a commercial before eight and a half minutes, you know?
6: But, but I, think, I think that
4: we learned on a, on a much smaller scale uh, on the last record when the first single was Soul Meets Body. I mean, there's these... I would even say there are probably written rules of radio where... You know, the singing has to come in in the first 15 seconds. The chorus has to come in the first 40 seconds. You know, there's these very rigid rules. I don't know who made them up. Nickelback. Nickelback, did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's stuck to them, I think, pretty rigidly. Uh, you know, that, that this, is, this is what you need to get played on the radio. This is how it works. And, you know, when we turn in Soul Meets Body as the first single, the the chorus doesn't come into the song for the first minute and a half or minute 40 or whatever. I mean, it's towards the end of the song. You know, I think that, you know, for whatever reason, our band has a series of qualities that people like. And, and, um, and, you know, I think we're able to kind of bend, at least bend the rules a little bit for for our band
2: respect the intelligence of the audience, which is a novel idea, but uh, sure, yeah. you know, hey, yeah. they might get it. You know, right, They right. might be smart enough to understand this. Uh, oh,
5: but they might not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what if they don't? <laughs> I don't know.
4: There are some three-syllable words in this song. Which yeah, probably.
0: exactly. <laughs> well, you're joking about the lyrics and, and, and the uh, the lyricism, uh, but I did read a couple of interviews you did, Ben, where you said one of the goals was to be a little less obtuse in, in the writing on this, uh, on this album. What, what did you mean? What, what, did, what were you trying to get at? I really, I really want, you know, for when somebody hears a song that I've written the lyrics
4: for for the first time, that they're able to kind of put themselves in the song, understand what's happening, but hopefully there'll be enough turns of phrase that are interesting that you know, it won't take the listener out of the song, but you know, it will certainly add to the enjoyment of
0: it. Mm. What about something like "I Will Possess Your Heart"? I mean, it's written from the point of view of a stalker, and the first time you hear it, I mean, it's, it's beautiful song, and you know, it's like, oh, you know, I will possess your heart. I mean, it sounds like a, a love song, and then you go, like, "It's a really creepy love song." Right. Yeah. <laughs> In writing that song, I, I wanted kind of
4: construct the narrator as a person who doesn't see what they're doing as being anything inappropriate. That this the narrator just kind of has an object of his or her affection. And kind of, you know, is, I think, like many of us, have, you know, at, at times in our lives, have either been on one or the other side of this kind of coin. And, and I, think that, I think that, you know, there's that line where obsession becomes a little bit dangerous or, or inappropriate, I guess. And, you know, I think that, you know, the narrator in the song doesn't see anything wrong with the fact that this person goes out of their way to pass by, you know, somebody's window every day and, and, and you know, maybe they take a detour to get there or maybe it's not, it's not on their way at all. And they just kind of, you know, longingly look up and say, "You know what? Someday, you know, this person's going to understand me, and I'm going to be able to look out at the world from that window, and everything's going to be great." But that's, you know, but I think that it's it's in the the lack of um, lack of perspective that that's not that that's inappropriate that makes it creepy, you know.
2: That that's actually a, a great point because from the outside, you as a songwriter get a lot of scrutiny songwriter about the heartbroken I and mean, a lot of songs dealing with that downside of of, of romance or relationships. You're in a good place right now on a number of levels. Personally, uh, and the band is doing well, and yet this record is a really dark record in a lot of ways. I mean, not only do we have the stalker song, but we've got the song about the bride who's going up to get married, and you're basically telling her this will never work. Is it a question of you having to get yourself into that place to write these songs? I mean, obviously it's not coming from like immediate experience, but What kind of a what kind of a experience or a mood do you have to be in in order to write this way?
4: Well, I mean, I think it's. I mean, everybody has. I think those moments when they're you know kind of falling asleep or when they're alone and they kind of thoughts kind of pass through their mind that are that maybe run counter to the way their lives actually are, or they they question their relationships with the people that are closest to them, whether whether it's friendships, romantic relationships. It's like you know, I write by myself. I'm, I'm alone most of the day when I'm working on music and. And, you know, my mind kind of tends to wander to, uh, you know, kind of the more melancholic kind of aspects of my life and those around me. I mean, I feel like I'm a a relatively well-rounded person emotionally. Writing about a lot of this material, you know, is the, uh, you know, allows me to kind of, you know, deal with some larger questions that I have about my life and those of lives around me. And, you know, and I I feel like I'm a, a more rounded person for it than if I didn't do it.
2: And you, you get a lot of feedback from your fans. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of people connect to you on that level, uh, and, and I think they almost assume that you're that kind of person. Well, I write you in first person. Completely sees through my life. He's exact, It's exactly well, my. And I, life and I write in first song. person
4: a lot. So yeah. you know, I mean, I think when you write in first person, there's naturally going to be an assumption that yeah. the person writing the song is is has either has has experienced it directly or or that when you hear that song and you sing that song to yourself, you can put yourself in the shoes of the narrator far better than if it was in the third person.
2: Well, do you realize that you're, you're sort of a, uh, a, a virtual therapist for uh, thousands of, especially young girls out there? Just, It's, it's an amazing... Uh... Well, I am for myself as
6: well.
2: So. <laughs> well, on that note, how about another song from you guys?
6: potential the potential of you and me it's like a book elegantly bound but in a language that you can't read you you gotta spend some time love you gotta spend some time with me and I know that you'll find love I will possess your heart you gotta spend some time Oh Slowly
0: Bless your heart from the new album, Narrow Stairs. What a great song. And Thank you. I feel guilty for liking it so much because it's also so creepy. Right. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah.
2: You know, uh, serious question, though, Ben. You did the project with Jimmy Tamarello, the, uh, the Postal Service, which was a hugely successful record. I believe the second biggest-selling record in the history of sub-pop records. Chris, you also did a solo record... Um, My question is, how do these outside projects help or hinder what's going on in in Death Cab?
4: I think that just in relation to the band, I think that we, you know, we were basically on the road from August of 2005 through December of 2006, which was, you know, probably not a long tour by, like, Metallica standards, but but for our band up through this point it was truly the longest period of time that we'd been away from home and with very small gaps of time in between there and the only thing that kept us sane through all of that one of many things was that you know, that that we knew that as soon as December of 2006 hit, the album campaign was over. Like, there wasn't going to be a, well, hey, "I Will fall in the Dark is really popping at hot AC, and we got to get out there. And, you know, it's like, well, no, it's over. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's happening at that point. We need to stop doing the band at that point and give ourselves six to eight months to recuperate so I could write songs, Chris could finish his record, you know, we could, Jason built a studio, Nick's been writing, just that we can all, you know, we're we're all at an age now, and we've been doing this long enough that, like, you know, we need that time away f- from the band now to kind of enjoy the fact that we've been a, su- a successful band. Like, you know, that we, we can afford to take some time away and not be worried about people, A, forgetting about us, or B, having to go out and get a job at Kinko's, you know, the next day because, you know, we can't make the rent. I mean, we're very, I feel so fortunate that, I think we all do, that we're in that place now, but, you know mental sanity always comes first, and I think that finish line of December 2006, you know, and the projects that we were going to jump into after that allowed us to kind of make it through that long campaign.
0: We're going to get one more song, and then we're going to say say goodbye to you guys. Is that fair? Uh, That is correct. We have a plane to catch.
2: Okay. Plane to catch. Set up the song for us, Ben. What are are we going to hear? Uh,
0: We are going to hear a song from
4: our second record, uh, a song called We Have the Facts, uh, a record called We Have the Facts from voting Yes. I, I kind of... It's 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 three and a half minutes of remembering what it was like to be 20, (laughs) and that you know, in all its kind of confusion and glory. So Uh, here it goes like this.
6: And drove a stake down into your center And stated that it's never ever been better than this I hung my favorite shirt on the floorboard Wrinkled up from pulling, pushing and tasting, tasting You keep twisting the truth
0: Well, thank you, Death Cab for Cutie, for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks
4: for having us. It's, uh, it's been an honor. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
2: To see photos and listen to bonus songs from Death Cab for Cutie, visit our website, soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of a new album from R&B star Usher. Plus, Jim is going to plug a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox.
6: Can she stand with a well-intentioned man? But she can. With his hands on the small of her back And as the flash falls burst She holds a smile Like someone would hold A crying child
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the new single from the artist named Usher. It's called Love in This Club from his fifth album, Here I Stand. Jim, do you realize uh, Usher Raymond of Atlanta, Georgia, is now 29 years old. When he first started making music, Bill Clinton was in the White House. Yeah, Kurt Cobain right. was still alive. Yeah, he was 15, right? Or 13? Sla- yeah, 14 years old. Slash was still in Guns N' Roses. Oh, my God. God's That's a long time ago the man debuted in 1994 different era of r&b he's now on his fifth album he sold millions of records his last record was a huge huge breakthrough sold nine million copies called confessions its signature song was yeah that uh, co-production by lil john who at the time was the the king of crunk funk and he merged that heavy southern funk sound with ushers croon and created a huge huge phenomenon Usher now stands as one of the leading R&B artists in the country. Now he's back. He's uh, things have changed. He's married. He's got a kid. Here I stand is the record that is supposed to represent the new Usher, the new mature Usher, the guy who can keep his shirt on and still get the ladies because uh, he's no longer, you know, running around in the clubs like he used to. Let's play a song from the record before we review it. It's called "This Ain't Sex" from the new Usher record. Here I stand on Sound Opinions.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's just you and me uh, yeah. Yeah, You feel that? Yeah You know what's gonna happen once I get you over here right? <laughs> You scared Yeah, Baby I can't wait to get you up in my boots Set up the mood
0: Saint Sex by Usher, Raymond the Fourth from his new album Here I Stand. Greg, manhood is the key word in the Usher camp these days. Every interview he's going on and on about it. No longer a boy, he's now a man. Some would say it was late blooming. You know, he's 29 now, for goodness sakes. But I like a lot of the ways that he's turning. R&B on its head. It's not radical. It's not revolutionary. Much more could be done. But I think that for the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen R&B dominated by a real kind of lowest common denominator, hot to trot, unbridled sexuality, epitomized, of course, by R. Kelly. Where does R&B go after Kelly stretched the envelope so far? Usher Raymond, I think, is uh, is saying, let's go back to the old school. And another song on this album, Love You Gently, he's invoking Sade, Al Green, Marvin Gaye. I want to love you gently. You know, I don't want to <laughs> do the freaky thing. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He married a woman seven years older than himself. She had three children already. He proudly became their stepdad and had a baby, Usher Raymond the fifth and and is now trying to be a family man at the same time still trying to have sex and, and like it <laughs> you know that, that's a lot to pack into an r&b song i mean r&b today has to do this that and the other thing you know has has to be sexy has to have a mix of the crooning and the club uh tracks you know and it's like it's been boring it's been mired in the same thing for so long at least usher is trying he's not 100 percent successful but i like the guy
2: yeah, it's hard not to like the guy. The problem is I'm still looking for that distinctive personality to emerge. I mean, one thing you got to say about R. Kelly, love him or hate him. Uh, there's people in both camps, certainly. The guy has a distinctive personality. You know what he's about. Usher, I'm <laughs> yeah. still not sure I know what he's about. And and this fence straddling that he's doing on this record doesn't help problems. It's clear that his heart is still in the clubs. Even near the end of the record, after he's sung the the prayer to his kid and the ode to his wife about how I'll love you forever, yeah. he's still talking about what happens if I had to do a three-way. And The point being that I, I think some of the excitement has been lost. Yeah, it was a great song. I mean, you know, there was a energy in that song that is so distinctive, and it still cuts through the airways. It still sounds like nothing else on the radio at that time or even today.
3: on
2: On this record, I hear him, you know, plugging into set formulas. That song we just played is a clear ode to disco era Michael Jackson. Yeah. There's a song on here called Moving Mountains. It sounds like one of those awful One Republic or Frey piano ballads.
3: Just do it. Through, but it's like it's like
2: We've got the, the Jay-Z cameo. We've got yeah. the Beyoncé. And the Beyoncé's yeah. got both of them.
0: Well, let's go right so back. So who is this guy?
2: You're burying the
0: lead here. Love in This Club, the hit single, is built on two stock Samples from the
2: Garage Band program. Well, that, you know. that, that's where I'm going with this, Jim. I, I think the <laughs> the point is that a lot of this is begged, borrowed, and stolen, and he doesn't really have his own distinctive personality. Yeah, I like Usher. He seems like a normal, average guy, but I don't see star here. I hear I see a guy doing R and B like a lot of other people are doing right now. This is a nice record. That's about all I can say about it. It's a burn it all the way for me. Well, I only think it's a burn it too. I, I think he he is doing it like a lot of
0: other people are doing. But there isn't anybody uh, on the male side of things since D'Angelo checked out almost a decade ago now who's really been pushing the envelope right i mean i'll take usher way before neo or chris brown but you know it's a burn it you're right
6: i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched
3: Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
2: As often as we can, one of us takes a trip to the desert island to plug a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and this week it is Jim DiRigatis' turn.
0: Thank you, Mr. Cott. Uh You know, we are both dads, and I think we are both trying mightily not to uh, ever bestow the curse of being a rock critic upon our progeny. Because, <laughs> boy, that would be an awful life. Uh, yet, nevertheless, my 11-year-old daughter uh, sometimes blows my mind with a piece of rock critic wisdom, the likes of which I've never been able to reach. The other day, she was getting ready to sing in her school's on-Broadway presentation a song from a Broadway musical called Yakety Yak. And I said, wait, wait, wait a minute now. That's not a not a Broadway So she said, oh, yeah, I was in this Smokey Joe's Cafe play. But you know, Dad, the Coasters version was much, much better. <laughs> Completely blew my mind. I said, what are you talking I have it on my iPod. The Coasters version is much better. Yeah. You know, and of course she's right, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? If I had told her that, she'd probably disagree, but she came up with it on her own. And I think in the long history of us doing Desert Island Jukeboxes, we have never paid homage to the Coasters. Am I wrong? That's true. You're right about that. What a fascinating band. There's recently been a resurgence among the uh, more egg-headed Academic rock crit brethren and sister of ours who've been saying the coasters were one of the first great groups who they were not creators, they were not primary creators they didn 't write their own songs they were singing of course, and had a string of, of incredible hits with Lieber and Stoller songs and yet they haven 't gotten their due merely because they were mouthpieces, unlike say you know the backstreet boys are in sync of these days what 's more there 's all this weird back and forth race stuff. Lieber a couple of years ago said what the coasters were were black guys. Trying to portray a black kid's version of the white world, and I mean, I, I've been trying to figure that out forever. Oh. You know, <laughs> especially in the song "Yakety Yak." In other words, it's, it's black people making fun of white teenagers mm-hmm. trying to be black. It's the kid in "Yakety Yak"? He just wants to play rock and roll, right? And his parents have this long list of things he's got to do. He's got to do the chores. And there's no more rock and roll for you until you – and, of course, the kid's tuning it all out, yakety-yak. And then, they, you know, mom or dad comes in, don't talk back. And I don't know why that's black or white. I mean, that's that's timeless. There yeah. were cavemen who tried to get the <laughs> cave kids to go out and do something, and the cave kids were saying, yeah, 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 right. You know what I mean? We just want to rock. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is as <laughs> old as human beings, and probably amoebas did the same thing once, you know, the primordial. Soup gave life. Anyway, this is a timeless song, and it's a classic. It was a number one hit for the coasters. They don't get their due. They're a fascinating group. One of them turned out to have have life as a comedian afterwards, Mm -hmm. after the group. Another one turns out was gay, you know, way before it was safe for performers to come out. One of the guys in a later version of the band was murdered in Las Vegas. There's only one original coaster left now. They're well worth remembering, and this is a classic song. What else can you say? It's Yakety Yak by the coasters on Sound Opinions.
3: Take out the papers and the trash. Or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen blur you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Don't do that.
3: Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust car with that broom. You just put on your coat and hat and walk yourself to the laundry mat. And when you finish doing that, bring in the dog and put out the cat. Yeah, yeah.
6: Don't go.
0: Coasters with Yakety Yak. Greg, I forgot to mention that uh, King Curtis sack solo. What incredible stuff. I mean, during the the verses, he's punctuating the argument. And then for the solo, it's just like he's doing a version basically of somebody going blah, 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 blah.
2: It is the Yakety Yak. Great stuff, Jim. Next week we have uh, more good stuff because people are going to be waiting with bated breath to hear this show. Hard as it may be to believe, we have been wrong a few
0: times
2: (laughs) in our Rock Critic past and now we're going to get those skeletons out of our closet and reveal all next week where we were wrong.
0: Yes, Greg, and some people who are never wrong are our intrepid production team. Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. The fine folks over at wall-to-wall recording taped our session with Death Camp for Cutie at the Outstanding Chicago Cultural Center, which was uh, loaned to us by the Department of Cultural Affairs in Chicago. One of the only things here that actually works. And speaking of working hard, a man who was only wrong once, our fearless leader, Tori Southside-Malatee.
2: opinions everyone's a critic so give us a call on our hotline one eight 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 five nine eighteen hundred. 859 1800
6: new messages
7: Yes, hi, this is uh, Dominic calling from Brooklyn, New York. I did want to comment about the Saul Williams uh, interview you did. I felt like his comments about how he, you know, was partnering up with Nike to do an ad were, you know, understandable in these days. and I certainly respect it, although I have to have an issue with what he said is the reasons why to do it, which is corporations are increasingly trying to have better practices and, and have more environmental outlooks. and. I think the reason why they are doing that is because they recognize that there's a market for that, and that's why corporations are really looking in this, in this direction, because they recognize that people want this service or want, you know, green initiatives, and that's the only reason why they're putting time, attention, and money towards it. And I think clearly his main motivation, you know, is radio play and some money, some, you know, for someone who's having a difficult time trying to do so. So I feel like that's kind of a cop-out, and I think he should own up to the fact that it was more about Airplay and uh, you know money. Thanks, love the show, and uh, appreciate
6: it. Hi,
0: this is Patrick Boy from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I was sort of surprised you guys described Los Campesinos as pretentious. If anything, for a bunch of kids, there's a remarkable lack of pretension. Nowhere in the lyrics is there a suggestion that they're full of emotions and you just don't understand, old man. Or that they were the first people to
7: ever discover sex and drugs. Or that they're the greatest band in the whole world. I guess they name drop stuff once in a while. Most of the album captures what it's like to be 16, which is that you have a lot of
0: energy, you don't have a lot of responsibilities, and you have a lot of stupid relationships that get broken up for stupid reasons. This album made me feel like I was in hate school again, and I really mean that in
7: the nicest way possible. I was really surprised that you guys gave it such a negative review for such a high-spirited, high-flying album. Anyways, I enjoy the show. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs> Hey, guys, this is Evan from Chicago, and uh, I was listening to the show today, and you were talking about how people always complain that you spend too much time with Chicago music, and I had a thought for you. Maybe you should do a show where you pick a city, maybe Chicago, maybe Athens, Georgia, maybe Minneapolis, and you give us the music from that city. Maybe, like, an earlier band that's been influential on the latest scene, and then just bands from the latest scene, so that each time we, you know, hear something like that, we get a whole overview of that
0: particular city.
7: And then you couldn't, you know, people couldn't complain that you're talking about Chicago if you have a whole show on Chicago, and then you go on to some other cities. So uh, I hope this idea works out for you, and I hope to hear about it soon. Take care. Thanks, guys. Hey, Hey, guys, this is Nick from Fargo, North Dakota. Just listen to your Buried Treasures show, and I've been waiting for you guys to bring up Man Man from Philadelphia. I've seen him live a bunch of times. The show is indescribably great. Just energy, energy, energy. Some of my friends describe it as gypsy pirate music. And I would just like to hear your opinion on them. All right. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye.
0: No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.